We're looking, as I've said, at Psalm 122 on page 622 uh, there in the Pew Bible. Let's pray. Father God, it's been our privilege already this evening to enjoy your company. Lord, to to lift our voices to you and to bring our prayers to you and to worship you. Lord, be with us now as we come to think a little bit uh, about what worship is and what it is that you've called us to. And Lord, teach us of the the wonderful, life-changing experience that worship can be. Lord, come and speak now by your word. Amen. One of the hardest parts of pastoral ministry is to listen with a straight face to some of the reasons why people give for not coming to church. My mum made me go when I was younger, and it put me off. And so that person has decided on a life without worship. Another person says, um, Sundays, that's my only chance for a lie-in. I couldn't possibly come to worship on a Sunday. So they, again, don't join us in worship. Others give the excuse, the the well-worn one, that the church is full of hypocrites. Uh, And there we are. It used to be my response that I would, I'd try to take these people on and I'd to try to challenge them in these notions, whatever they were. For example, if somebody told me they couldn't come to church because they didn't have a lift, I'd say, well, listen, I'll sort that out for you. I'll get somebody to come by and give you a lift. And it was only after I'd done this once or twice that I noticed a pattern, a look of fear. Oh, no, 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 don't do that. They were terrified as the rug was pulled under their feet. And and as soon as that excuse was taken away, two or three others would would spring up in its place. So that's the the pattern that that I realized. So people who who don't want to come to church, who have their excuses, they don't want help to understand that their excuses aren't all that valid. So I've actually given up trying to challenge them uh, on their excuses. One of my mentors in pastoral ministry, Eugene Peterson, he he talks about a case like this. And he says that in cases like this, I listen with a straight face to these excuses. And I go home. And I pray that the person will one day find the one sufficient reason for going to church, which is God. I want to learn to do the same. I don't want to be the kind of person who's always cajoling people, always hassling them and prodding them to come to worship. Instead, I want to pray that God would use the things that I say and uh, the invitations that I give uh, to create in people a hunger and a desire to come to worship rather than a guilt. For all the people who don't come to worship, though, there are lots of people who do come. I mean, look around here this evening. Again, a lot of people have have chosen this evening to come here and to worship God. We had a large crowd of people this morning of all ages gathering to worship God. 
Worship is one of the key acts in any life of discipleship. So in his classic book, Celebration of Discipline, Richard Foster says, the divine priority is worship first and service second. Our lives are to be punctuated with praise, thanksgiving, and adoration. So worship is one of the main ways in which disciples of Jesus Christ are nourished. And the worship service is one of the key places where they grow. In Psalm 122 here, we have the song of a person who's decided that they're going to go to church and worship God. Now, this person doesn't stand alone. This person's simply only one person among the millions through the history of the church who have decided to take the same, to do the same thing. Let's take a moment just to remind ourselves where we're at here. Psalm 122 is the third of the Songs of Ascent, a series beginning at Psalm 120 and going through to 134. These are, are songs for the road, songs that the Hebrew pilgrims used to sing on their way to the worship festivals in Jerusalem. So they're songs for people who are going to God. They're on a journey to God, and that's why we're interested in them, because we're pilgrims on a journey to God, and we can find a lot of help here for that journey in these psalms. If you were here two weeks ago, you'll remember that Psalm 120 is the one that got us started, and it's a psalm of repentance. It reminds us that every journey to God starts with a saying no to other things. If we're really serious about going to God and living well for God, there are other things, there are other deceptions, other ways of life that we need to say no to. So Psalm 120 gets us going. It's a psalm of repentance. Last Sunday evening, Philip opened Psalm 121 for us. And it's a psalm that speaks of God's providence. God's watching over us. The psalm's great because it's honest about the kind of dangers that we're going to experience. It's, it's very honest on the one hand, but it also reassures us that God's going to watch over us. All the, the water in all the oceans in the world can't sink a ship unless it gets inside of it. And all the trouble and all the crisis and all the disaster in the world can't harm us unless it gets inside of us. And that's what God promises to protect us against. The Lord will keep you from all harm. So it's on the back of these two psalms now that Psalm 122 is a psalm of worship. Let's get stuck into the psalm here and, and move through it this evening. The first line of the psalm might catch you by a surprise. I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. We're inclined to think that people come to church because they feel they should, aren't we? Even those of us who have been doing this for years, somewhere in the back of our minds and somewhere very pervasive in our culture, our Christian culture, is this notion that you should go to church. But that's not the sense you get here from the psalmist. He catches us by surprise. He uses the word rejoice about his experience of worship. He's loving it. And that psalmist's enthusiasm, 
as I've already said. I think it does maybe catch us by surprise. But actually, if we could, if we could fold back all the layers, all the, all the cajoling that our parents did with us years ago, all the, all the times that the, the church leaders begged us to come to church, somewhere in the heart of us, probably most of us do enjoy coming to worship. Although there are times in our lives when we were forced by our parents or by our spouses, a lot of us are here this evening because we've chosen to be here. And although we're Presbyterians and we maybe don't quickly get to words like rejoice uh, when we think of worship, we're here because we've chosen to, to be, because we want to be. And a lot of people are making the same choice. You know, we live in a time when the statistics are all about decline in church attendance, but there's still a lot of people who do this. On a Sunday morning in Ulster, there are more people in churches than there are playing golf, than there are hiking in the morns, than, than many of these other leisure time activities. It's still a thing that lots of people choose to do. We choose to come together and worship God. I've already alluded to the, the Christian leader who begs people to come to church. I don't know if you've ever been in a church where that's been part of the ongoing habits of the leadership. I have, and I must say, I didn't enjoy it. I didn't enjoy being cajoled week by week to come out to the evening service and support it. I remember deciding early in my ministry that I wouldn't do that, that I wouldn't beg people to come to church services or to any other activity in the church. Rather, I would try to give all of my energy to ensuring that those, those services and, and those, those ministries of the church are places that people might even want to come to, uh, that they might be worthwhile and, and beneficial in their own terms. So that's what the psalmist is talking about here in verse 1. Magic. It's Sunday. I get to go meet with, with my friends in the presence of the living God and to worship him. Have you ever felt that way? Even once? It's, it's quite a revelation when it happens. When, when you realize, goodness, this is great. There's something great about this life of worship. I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Why do we do it? Why do so many people all over the world today and through the history of the church, give up their precious time for an hour on a Sunday morning or, or two hours if they come out again on a Sunday evening? Why do we do that? What is it about worship that makes it worthwhile for us? Well, the psalmist here points out three reasons. He suggests that worship gives structure to our lives, that it's been commanded by God, and that it allows us to hear God speak. So let's begin with the first of those. Worship gives structure to our life. The psalmist says in verse 3, Jerusalem is built like a city that's closely compacted together. For Jews, Jerusalem is the place of worship. Okay? So in the mind of a Jew, Jerusalem and worship go hand in hand. 
Philip explained this a wee bit to us last week, and I'd mentioned it in the opening week of our series. There are pilgrims here. They're going three times a year to worship God in Jerusalem. Everything that God has said to them and everything that he's done for them, they celebrate in Jerusalem. So whenever they gather together in Jerusalem, they're reminded more than any other time, they're reminded who they are. They're the people God created. They're the people whom God has blessed. And they're the people whom God has saved. All of that they would be reminded of when they worshiped in Jerusalem. So in a very real sense, worship, being in Jerusalem, made sense of the whole of their lives. The psalmist, as you can see here, he uses an architectural metaphor for what worship is. He says it's closely compacted together. He talks about this city where all the stones fit together. There, there are no, there's no rubble lying about. There's no bits that don't fit. I have to say, for me, the image it conjured up was, you know those walls that are built in the morns from stones of all sorts of different sizes? Uh, and there are very skilled stone builders who, who seem to be able to put those together. Uh, that's the image this conjured up for me, a place where everything fits and has its place and makes sense. Well, the psalmist says that that's what worship is like, that when we come into the presence of God, when we worship him, all the parts of our lives that, that, that don't always fit together very well, those things that leave us confused, they suddenly begin to make more sense that our life fits together better. Nothing's out of proportion and everything fits into a workable frame. I've already mentioned Eugene Peterson and his, his notion of, of pastoral ministry. Well, in his book, Along Obedience in the Same Direction, he tells of a woman in his congregation who'd phoned him needing some guidance. He says, as I entered the home, the woman I came to see was sitting at the window embroidering a piece of cloth held taut over an oval loop. She said, Pastor, while I was waiting for you to come, I realized what's wrong with me. I don't have a frame. My feelings, my thoughts, my activities, everything's loose and sloppy. There's no border for my life. I never know where I am. I need a frame for my life like this one I have for my embroidery. There are people here this evening who have discovered in worship just such a frame for their lives. In gathering together week by week before God and with God's people, you found a structure for your life, a place that, to stand that allows you to work and to love your family, and to do all the other things that God has called you to. Now, you may never have thought about it in those terms before, but the truth is that worshiping God and doing it faithfully and regularly is helping you to live well and live better than you would do if you weren't worshiping. So that's the first reason the psalmist gives why Christians go to worship. Week by week, they enter a place that's closely compacted together. They find structure for their lives. 
A second reason why Christians keep coming to worship is because they've been commanded to. Worship's the place where we obey God's command to praise him. Look at verse 4. Talking of Jerusalem, the psalmist said, that's where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statute given to Israel. So the tribes are going up, and one reason why they're going up is simply because they've been commanded to do that. And we looked at that earlier in our series, the commands in the Old Testament for the people to go up to Jerusalem. I wonder how you respond to that notion that worship is a commanded thing. Lots of people don't like this. They say, well, I won't worship God if I don't feel like it because I don't want to be a hypocrite. If I don't feel like going to church on a Sunday, I'm not going to go. I want to be genuine and authentic about the whole thing. But the psalmist here, he says something different. He says, I don't care whether you feel like it or not. Praise the name of the Lord according to the statute, according to the law given to Israel. Friends, our feelings, if we're honest about it, they're great liars. Uh, they're, they're very important in some areas of life, but they're not very reliable as a basis for our faith. We tend to think if we don't feel like doing something, then it's hypocritical to go ahead and to do it. And that's one of the reasons we give for not coming to worship. I didn't feel like it, and I didn't want to be a hypocrite. And to our ears, that that argument does sound persuasive. I want to be honest about that. But that argument would never be persuasive to the people of God formed by listening to God's Word. You see, God's Word has always taught us that we aren't governed by our feelings, but instead we're governed by a willingness to obey God's commands. God's Word's always taught us that we can act our way into new ways of feeling. But it's much, much less likely that we'll feel our way into new ways of acting. In which category would you put worship? Is worship an act of the will, or is it something you feel? I'd say the modern answer is more on the feeling side, that worship are, are feelings that we try to whip up but the biblical answer is that worship is an act of the will, an act of obedience. And the, the lovely thing is that when we act in obedience, it's then that our hearts open to God. And that, that expressive, that emotive side opens up and takes care of itself. Friends, we praise God because it's been commanded. That's a second reason the psalmist gives why we come to worship. The third reason the psalmist gives in verse 5, he says, there the thrones of judgment stand, the thrones for the house of David. Now that doesn't seem immediately clear to us. The biblical word judgment, it talks about the word of God, which God speaks to put things right. Thrones of judges are, are places where, where God announces his word, where God tells us his, his view of the world, if you like. So David's talking here about something a bit like a verdict given in a modern court. 
The psalmist says that when we come to worship, we come to the place where God's verdict in our lives and on the world that we live in is heard. Think about the role that the Word of God plays in just an everyday service here in our church life. In the call to worship, very often we begin with a straight call to worship from God's Word. In the benediction, we hear God's final word to us. In the Bible readings, we hear what God spoke to our fathers long before us. In the sermon, we hear the, the minister or the preacher trying to, to reapply God's word to us today. Even the hymns. Isn't it true to say that a lot of them are, are paraphrased versions of God's word that open, open up God's word to us again? God's word shapes and structures many of our prayers. So the reality is that whenever we're in a worship service, it's much more than just the Bible reading or the sermon that brings us in contact with the word of God. The whole experience brings us into a world that's shaped by God's words as they've been revealed and given to us. Now, a person might say, well, well, that's all very well, but I can read God's Word at home. I can read good Christian books at home and enjoy biblical commentaries. But if you think about that for even just a moment, we can read God's Word at home, but we're going to miss an awful lot of it. For a start, most of us will miss the accountability of doing it regularly. One of the good things about worship on a Sunday morning is that loads of other people come. And for all of us, we're social creatures. We find it easier to do something if other people around us are doing it. If other people around us are committed to coming to the place where they'll hear God's word, we'll find it easier to do that. And in our heart of hearts, if we're honest, most of us will find it easier to come and to be part of a group listening to God's word, then, then we find it maybe faithfully to do that on our own. But we'll not only be limited in terms of our, our attendance uh, if we try to, to listen to God's word on our own, we'll be limited in what we actually get from it uh, and what we hear. If you read God's word on your own, there's a great danger that your experience will be limited to your own interests and your own prejudices. You'll read those parts of God's Word that you like because nobody's going to challenge you to read those parts that you don't like. You'll read the parts that, that have become hobby horses for you and you'll leave out the difficult bits. There'll be no accountability in what exactly it is you hear in God's Word. I, I would suggest to your friends that it's, it's different and healthier for all of us when we gather together as a community and listen to God's word together as part of a worship service. So that's a, a third and a wonderful reason to be at worship. Worship allows us to hear the word of God. For some people, even if they were presented with those three reasons that the psalmist gives this evening, the notion that worship gives a structure to our lives, that it's a call to obey God, 
that it's a place to hear God's word. Even if they heard all of that, they'd be skeptical. Because they still think, well, it feels like such a waste of time. Uh, one, one writer recently wrote a book about worship called A Right Royal Waste of Time. Because I think uh, Marva Dawn, when she wrote that book, she identified that worship doesn't seem to get an awful lot done. What does worship do for homelessness in East Belfast? What does worship do about those who are starving in Darfur? You see what I mean? There seems to be a, a disconnection here that this activity that we give so much of our time to, we're not sure that it has any relevance for real life beyond itself. We wonder whether this hour or this, these two hours we spend on a Sunday are really worth it. Well, the psalmist tells us that it is. In the final verses of Psalm 122, he says, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my brothers and sisters, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I'll seek your prosperity. What we have here, and this worship that the psalmist is calling us to, is a worship that has relevance beyond the bounds of itself. These prayers with which the psalmist ends, they, they move beyond the time of worship to create new relationships in his city and in society. And this is something we have been trying to learn as a congregation here at Kirkpatrick Memorial in recent times. We want our discipleship to affect more than just Sundays. We want to learn how following Jesus affects our work, our families, our retirement, our neighborhood, technology, and every other aspect of those lives that we have been called to. We want to get way beyond the point where worship is some sort of irrelevant Sunday diversion. Worship changes everything on the other six days in between. So the final section of the psalm begins in verse 6 with the word prayer or pray. It's prayer that links this worshiping world into the world beyond, the world of everyday life. And the interesting thing here is that this word pray that's used, it's not the normal word talked about praying in public worship. This is the everyday Hebrew word for ask. Now, the NIV translation here I don't think is wrong because whenever we ask God for things, that, that is to be praying. But the asking that David's talking about here, it's not the formal prayer of a church service. This is an informal asking for the business of our life between Sundays. This word, it's, it's the, the Hebrew word that you would use to ask somebody to pass you the potatoes or, or to ask for directions if you were lost. Worship leads us asking God. I, I was quite struck by this as I was thinking about this psalm. 
Authentic worship should not leave us or have us leaving this place satisfied in our hunger for God. Instead, it should whet our appetite. Whenever we have, we have really worshipped God here in our sanctuary, we shouldn't leave here saying, that was great. I'll come back next week for a wee bit more of that. Instead, we should leave here saying, that experience of being in God's presence, uh, being with God's people was so real and so powerful that I don't want to live without it until next Sunday. I want to ask God to, to bring that same sense of his presence, that, that same sense of establishing his kingdom into the, the week that lies ahead. So the psalmist here, he prays, and with this we close, he prays for two things. He prays for peace and security. Shalom and shalva. Shalom is a word that many of you will be familiar with. It's one of the, the great words of the Bible. It's translated mostly when we see it as peace, but our understanding of that word is far, far too limited. Peace here doesn't mean just an absence of war. It doesn't mean just a, a tranquility, this sort of thing with a, a nice New Age CD playing in the background. The peace that, that is captured by the biblical word shalom, it talks of all the goodness and all the health and all the wholeness that God longs to give you. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine living exactly the life that your loving Father God would give to you in all the health and wholeness and vitality of that? It's what Jesus talked about when he said that he had come to give life to the full. It's eternal life. That's what the psalmist here is praying. I think what he's simply praying is that the people around him would experience some of what he's just experienced as he's worshipped God. The other thing that the psalmist prays is for shelva, security. And it's nothing to do with insurance policies, with bank accounts, with large stockpiles of weapons. Again, there's a lovely word at the root of this. The word is just simply leisure. He's praying for these people that they would be relaxed that they would be at ease, that they'd be at leisure. He's praying that the people, he's praying that people would experience that because they know that everything's all right. They know, as we learned last week, that God watches over us, that he's with us and that he's for us in Jesus Christ. We can be, we can be entirely secure because Jesus is with us and he promises us that he will not leave us. It's whenever we worship that we experience the, the shalom of God and the shelva of God and it whets our appetite for more. We want more for ourselves and we want it for those outside, for those in the city around us where we live. I said at the outset of our, our 
our time together this evening that I determined early in ministry not to beg people to come to worship, not to cajole them into church activities and church ministries. It's been one of the great joys of my early ministry here at Kirkpatrick Memorial to see how God has drawn people to worship. In the absence of all of that that guilt-tripping and cajoling that there so often is in our church communities, God himself has called us. He's drawn us here to worship, and he's given us the song of the psalmist. He's given us these words on our lips. I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Let us pray.